No longer asking who will sink and who will swim. Together we rise. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by what to say when I haven't written anything down for what I am confused by. I somehow managed to forget to update the the uh, the, the notes for this week, so all I have written down is uh, fill something in here. So I apparently <laughs> am not confused by anything this week, but I am, uh, I at least know who I am. I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am joined once again by my colleague, Dr. Christopher Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome back, Chris. Uh, it's good to be back. And in our third chair, we have nobody, because if you listen to last episode, you will know that we had some at a, a scheduling issue and just couldn't make it. And since we record two of these at once, we are back in the same predicament of once again having to record just the two of us. But uh, since we, Chris and I have both patted ourselves on the back and agreed that the last episode went well uh, with just the two of us, we thought we would soldier on and record our, our second episode. So here, here we go. It's just like a Bill Withered song. You, you, you look like you were going to say something, so I paused. But uh, I, that, I don't know if that was worth pausing for. Am I muting or do you not like Bill Withers? No, you, you, I don't know who Bill Withers is. Oh, yes, you do. He wrote so many great songs back in the 60s and 70s. He, he was an R&B singer and was uh, a prominent as one of the musicians who went to uh, Zaire for the Muhammad Ali-George Foreman fight. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. George, uh, Bill Withers, a terrific recording artist. You'd love him. Oh, okay. Nick is, Nick is putting in some of the songs in the chat, and I definitely know the songs. I just didn't know the name. Um, my favorite is his song Kissing My Love. It's a great song. I'll have to check that out. Uh, and hopefully our listeners either have are already familiar or are going to go check that out as well. So for those of you who are not busy Googling who Bill Withers is, uh, if you could head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org because there is lots of great stuff on there, population health tools, programming, and you can even find podcasts like this one on there. So go on over and check it out. And then also while you're on the, the internets anyway, you may want to head over to your, your favorite podcast app or, or website and find a way to, to give us a, a rating so that other people can find us. And if you are willing to actually write a, a little review, then we will definitely feature it on air. So you can, uh, you can go ahead over and, and do that. Nick, do we have any any new um, – have you seen any new uh, reviews lately? I assume the answer is no because you, you would have sent it to me. Nick, so you all can't see Nick because he, and, he, and he mutes his microphone. But Nick is crying right now. He's he's burst into tears because he has no no new information to report. So I would, I would like to request your help in order to lift Nick's spirits. Go over and give us a, a rating and a, and a review. I just took a took a look at all our all our reviews on 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 uh, on Apple, and all of the ones where there was an actual written review were five stars. Did you know that? We've got like a dozen or change uh, and change reviews that that they they say that we're funny and witty and and apparently knowledgeable, which I find astonishing. But I'll take it. Yeah, the thing is, um, all of those were written by you and I under oh, fake names. Sh- so sh- we're yeah. not supposed to we're not supposed to admit that. Yeah. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our 
Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study on the effect of nurse to patient ratios in, you know, the idea of does having more nurses per per patient lead to better patient outcomes? And then in our second segment, which is our deep dive, we are we are going to totally wing it because we don't really have a specific paper that we're going to talk about so much as we're going to get into the controversy around the FDA approval of the drug. And here's where, you know, I fall into the same trap I fell into last time. Aducanumab, is that how you pronounce it, Chris? Aducanumab, yeah. Now called Aducanumab. Adjahelm. So it has a, a, tra- a like a trade name now. This is a, a drug that we have talked about on the podcast previously. So I may have to revisit my my take on the previous studies because I, I think I have a, a little bit of a different take now. So we'll get into that second. And then we'll get into our amazing and amusing. And uh, hopefully we'll find some, some interesting things where uh, Chris is going to get us all drunk and figure out if we all get closer to each other. Actually, we're going to talk about haikus today, but Haikus while drinking? Uh, could be. Still could reason be. why not. Could it's be. Like Reese's peanut butter cups. Two great taste beds together. So while Reese's peanut butter cups, do you remember the Reese's peanut butter cups advertisements from when, I'm going to say when I was a kid, you're slightly older than I, but of a similar generation. The the ones where, you know, the, they would have like a, a kid would go into a movie theater with a, 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 peanut, a chocolate bar and then another one would go in eating a, uh, peanut butter and one with the one with the chocolate bar would sit in the balcony and he would lean over and accidentally drop his chocolate into the peanut butter eating person's uh, jar of peanut butter below and they would say oh this is disgusting get your chocolate on my peanut butter and so the world would have to wait for the two great tastes to taste great together do you remember those yes i do they were funny i'm bringing that up for no other reason than to point out that i remember a lot of advertising from when i was a kid so the question does advertising have an impact on tv Yes. <laughs> it absolutely at does. Least, at least for it Matt Fox. Does. But I agree. I, I I have a lot of childhood memories, cherished childhood memories that focus on advertisements for, you know, like Lucky Charms and Count Chocula and, and Anthony and Prince Spaghetti and leave it let better. What it was, let, let's get Mikey for Life Cereal. That was my favorite. And Anthony from the Prince Spaghetti. That was that was from the, right here in the north end of Boston. That's right. That's right. Yep. Good All old right. Days. Well, I'm sure that's what people want to hear us talk about, but I am going to have to move us on over to our, our segment one, where we are going to look at a, an article on the effect of nurse to patient ratio. So it was published in the, the Lancet and it was entitled The Effects of Nurse to Patient Ratio Legislation on Nurse Staffing and Patient Mortality Readmissions and Length of Stay, a prospective study in a panel of hospitals by first author Matthew McHugh of the School of Nursing at the Center for Health Outcomes and Policy Research at the University of Pennsylvania in our fair city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, here in the United States. Some headlines on this one. So Eureka Alerts says minimum nurse to patient ratios policy saves lives and lowers costs. Here's a weird one from MSN that says South Africa, take note. Employing more nurses can slash total health costs, study suggests. Was that's that from weird. South Africa? It's weird because this study had nothing to do with South Africa. So I, I didn't read the article. So I don't know if this was like MSN South Africa or what, but I thought that was a weird headline. And then Medical Health News says minimum nurse to patient ratio policy saves lives and lowers costs. All right. Yeah. So let me let me try to walk you through this one with the the important caveat 
that Jess was the one who was initially going to present this study. So I am I am filling in for her and therefore uh, I'm doing this last minute and you know, my ability to convey this is, is not nearly as good as what Jess would do. But, you know, this idea of nurse to patient ratios has, has long been something that has been believed to be hypothesized to be impactful in whether or not patient outcomes are are better. And of course, you know, you could sort of say logically, it, it makes sense that if you have fewer patients for nurses to be managing, that it would improve patient outcomes because the nurses would have more time to focus on each individual patients, could be more attentive, could ensure that errors aren't happening. And there has been some some evidence to suggest that this has been the case. So there have been some studies that have looked at this and found that the higher, you know, higher or, or I should say lower nurse to patient ratios have been better for patient outcomes. But there there hasn't been a lot of research done to date on specifically on nurse to patient mandates within within hospitals, partly because they haven't been been mandated in lots of places. And and then on top of that, they just haven't been been evaluated. So, you know, mostly what you get are are cases where you're evaluating just differences in nurse to patient ratios that have not been mandated. They're just different. And and that comes with all kinds of of challenges. So this study that was done in Queensland, Australia, in, in it, where in 2016, Queensland did implement minimum nurse to patient ratios, but only in selected hospitals. And I don't actually know the details around why it only occurred in selected hospitals, but the idea was that the, this group wanted to evaluate whether the implementation of this policy in these selected hospitals improved the, the outcomes for patients in terms of the the measures that I talked about in the beginning. So those are patient mortality, patient readmissions, and then patient length of stay. So in terms of the actual policy, the what they say here is that the legislation required that the average nurse to patient ratios on morning and afternoon shifts be no lower than one to four, and on night shifts no lower than one to seven. That would be in intervention facilities. There were no there were no requirements for the for the control facilities. So they wanted to look at this. So that what they did was they implemented a prospective panel study. So panel study, they're they're sort of looking at patients over time in the period before and the period after these these ratios become implemented. Panel, you know, essentially, I, I think what we're getting at here is the idea panel is an idea that we don't really use in, in the epidemiologic literature, but it's more in the, the policy literature. But the idea being you, you can't have the same people in your study before and after the policy is implemented, but you can compare across hospitals. And so you're looking at sort of before and after implementation and also across hospitals where the ratios are, are mandates are implemented and where they are are not. And they then set this up and compared hospitals before and after the, the implementation on things like 30-day mortality, seven-day readmission rates, and then length of stay. Then a number of, of databases that they could link together to be able to do this. And they ended up with about 232,000 patients, of which roughly 140,000 are in the, the intervention facilities and 89,000 roughly are in the comparison facilities. To be clear, intervention does not imply randomization. There was This was not a randomized intervention, just an intervention. And what they found was 
After implementation of these maximum ratios, they found that mortality rates were not significantly higher than at baseline in the comparison arms. So when you look at facilities where these ratios were implemented, you're not finding a change in mortality rates in the comparison arms, figuring things are staying roughly stable across arms. But they were lower, though, in the... Modestly lower, but lower in the intervention arm. So you're talking about odds ratios of 0.89, 95% confidence interval from 0.84 to 0.95. So that's sort of looking at mortality. You know, I can't, you know, I don't know that you would expect large effects in terms of mortality, but seeing some is obviously beneficial if you believe that those are truly valid effects. They also look at readmission rates, which increased in the comparison arms, though, you know, ever so slightly, but they did not increase in the intervention arms. So you could argue there may be some small benefit there in terms of of readmission rates. And they also say that although length of stay decreased in both groups post-implementation, length of stay was reduced more in the intervention arm than in the comparison arms, such that you ended up with an overall reduction in your effect of, of length of stay. Again, if you believe that these are truly effects. So overall, I mean, they, they conclude that these are, are beneficial. It's beneficial to implement these staffing ratio mandates and they found that they were cost effective to implement these. Therefore, it would be you know effective approach to trying to reduce mortality and, and patient length of stay. Chris, anything I, I left out that you would add to the description there? No, I, I think I think you summarized it really well. And and I, I was trying to sort of put put all this together myself because it's a it's a fairly long paper and somewhat complicated to describe. But but in in its simplest form, the steps here was that you've got these 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 two groups of hospitals that are are either you know mandated to change their to reduce the the nursing staffing ratios. And so the first step in the in the in their analysis was to show that it that in fact the nursing ratios did fall. That is to say, they were fewer patients per nurse in the intervention group after two years into the study than at the beginning. And so the the policy achieved the thing it was supposed to do in terms of changing the ratios. And then the second question was, did that actually improve outcomes, as you've described and summarized, in the intervention groups more than the control, and, I, and they they show convincingly, particularly in the suggested model, I think is the most powerful and persuasive part that 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 it probably did. They then showed that you know when you look at the not just the the sort of intention to treat model, if you will, which is like you know these hospitals are supposed to have lower rates, but how much lower did the ratios actually fall? When you then look at the actual you know, nurse to patient ratios, they can they can find a you know a fairly consistent strong effect of you know you know x number of adverse outcomes are averted because of the of the reduction of like the you know one less patient per nurse gives you this benefit in terms of mortality in terms of thirty day mortality readmission rates or length of stay. So all of that I, I thought was was sort of a you know a a, a logical cadence of arguments that they made, which I think overall persuaded me. And then the last bit was this, the cost effectiveness showing that, that, you know, there's always this concern that you hire more nurses, you're going to, you know, you know, bankrupt the system and my God, you know, how can we do this? But what they, they showed is that by, uh, by avoiding these adverse consequences, that in fact, 
you know, for every dollar they spent on hiring one more nurse, they they saved two dollars in effect on dealing with the consequences of adverse patient outcomes. And so it was from that perspective, it was a win win. And I, I thought that was that was also a very powerful uh, argument to, to be made. But they left a lot of questions unanswered, which was what I was hoping to talk about. But I'm sure yeah, you have so thought, talk thoughts me through, too. Talk me through your your critique of the study. Okay, so uh, you know. They are they are quite transparent about the limitations of the study. I mean, this was not a randomized controlled trial. The, the two groups of hospitals were not chosen at random in any way, and and so you know there's certainly some selection bias concerns here, which they attempted to to deal with, and I guess also in terms of confounding in their statistical analysis. And you know, nonetheless, the the trial design was not a not a perfect trial design, but it was probably the best one can do given the difficulty in in doing it like. A true randomized control trial. Now, what I think they they didn't really answer is what is the optimal ratio. They've they've shown mm-hmm. that things get better when you reduce the nurse to patient ratio. But you know, this is obviously not a linear relationship. I mean, you can take this to absurdum, right? You could have ten nurses per one patient, and 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 surely that is not better than one nurse per patient. I mean, there there is, you know, there is a limit. Could be. So how well it seems unlikely that that you know you can you can continue this endlessly. But when when you look at the actual ratios that they describe, the difference between the ratios achieved in the intervention versus the control hospitals was not that great. It was like, you know, half a nurse per patient lower, or maybe one nurse per patient, one patient per nurse improved. But it wasn't mm-hmm. a huge difference. It wasn't like one had six, seven, eight patients and the other group had three. You know, they, they were it was it was a it was a, a fairly subtle difference. And so one wonders, like, what does the shape of that relationship really look like when you you look at different staffing ratios? Because again, I, I can't imagine that the benefit is is sustained indefinitely, because eventually there, there there must be an optimal ratio. So that's that's one question I really would would love to have uh, some follow on investigations uh, into. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me let me just stop you there. So yeah. so it is probably worth noting. So they say the in terms of the staffing. So 83% of the hospitals had more than 4.5 patients per nurse at baseline, with the number decreasing to 58%, so 21 of the 30 post-implementation, and the majority of that change was at the intervention hospitals. So that so that gives a sense for what the the actual numbers of patient ratio, nurse-to-patient ratios was. But you raise an interesting point, Chris, which is one that I, I often sort of talk with my students about, which is, you know, there are there are always an infinite number of questions we we could ask of any particular policy or or even just exposure right so like if we had all the money time and and resources in the world it would be fascinating to know what is the effect of smoking one cigarette in your lifetime on your risk of cardiovascular disease compared to two compared to three compared to four compared to five you know but but no one is ever going to do that and therefore we group things into you know things that we think are reasonably meaningful and will also give us enough power to be able to actually say something. So in this case, you know, as you point out, it would be it'd be great to know what is the effect of all the the different possible values you could have for for nurse to patient ratios, but you know, in this case what they were doing was taking advantage of a of a policy that they wanted to evaluate. So while I I 100% agree with you that the the question may not be the only or even the most important question to ask. It's the relevant one for what they could ask in this particular study. Right. I think that's that's a that's a good way of of, of expressing it. But but I would I would say that it's probably worth 
um, reading into the record what the actual impact of the policy was in terms of, of the average ratios. I love when you turn this into a, a, a legal <laughs> reading into a the courtroom, record. <laughs> a courtroom drama. Yes, it's too much iron sides. Anyway, so um, sustained in, in the in the comparison hospitals at baseline, the ratio was six point one three patients per nurse, and in the post implementation phase, it was five point nine six. So a difference of point one six patients. 0.17 patients, excuse me, per nurse less in the comparison hospital. So they, they also decreased slightly. And in the intervention hospital, it went from 4.84 patients per, per nurse. So a much lower starting number in the intervention hospitals, reminding us that this was not chosen at random. And in the post-implementation phase, it went from 4.84 to 4.37. So about a, a 0.5 patient, so about a half a patient on average, less in the intervention group, which is not a huge change. Yeah, interestingly. So, so this is really interesting to me because you know they refer to this as a, a quasi experimental design. I didn't totally understand what the quasi part of that is. I mean, usually when it's quasi, we're talking about the randomization is is sort of quasi in the sense that it, we didn't randomize, but there's some kind of nature's randomization. But that doesn't appear to be the case here. And therefore, I think unless unless somehow the the hospitals that this policy was applied to was somehow randomly allocated, but I don't think it was. They were, no, they definitely so, were not. So here, you know, the quasi, I think, probably refers to the fact that it was an intervention. It just wasn't a randomized intervention, which, you know, to me, like, does that really matter? I'm not sure it does. But it sort of speaks to this idea of this being almost like a, a policy analysis, which we talked about on segment two of our, our last podcast. And yet it didn't feel to me, and, and this is not my area of expertise, so maybe I'm wrong about this, but this didn't feel to me like your typical policy analysis, right? Because if you're, you know, in, in a policy analysis, the question is, does the implementation of the policy improve things? And the answer could be, no, it doesn't. And the reason that it doesn't is because the policy that you're implementing isn't that dramatically different from what's already happening in practice. Or it could be the policy doesn't work because people don't adhere to the policy. Right. Or it could be the policy doesn't work because people adhere to the policy and the policy is is useless. Right. So there's lots of different nuances there that you'd like to sort of know about. That is different from the sort of what I would think of as the more traditionally epidemiologic question of what is the, you know, the best patient to nurse to patient ratio in terms of the benefit for for patients in terms of mortality and length of stay and readmission. Both are, you know, those are all interesting questions, but I kind of want to know all of them. And this didn't answer all of them. Yeah, I agree with you. It, It would really have been much more persuasive if they had not just said, you know, the policy is that there can be no more than this number of of, of nurses per uh, patients per nurse, excuse me, and actually established a number that it should be. Like, you know, the the you know the base case is six patients per nurse, and we're going to move it to three, right? Because you know, I, I imagine that is the tendency of hospital administrators who are thinking about budgets and many other things. That if the policy says it it has to be no more than four, then the implementation of the policy is that it's going to be very close to four. It's not going to mm-hmm. be two, right? Mm-hmm. They're not they're not going to overshoot. They're going to do what the law says and possibly no more, right? I totally agree. Yeah. So yeah. 
So yeah, I mean, I so I, I feel like this 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 was interesting, provocative. It seemed like it was a a, a step forward in terms of the evidence because previously it's all just you know purely observational studies, and this at least was quasi interventional, quasi you know I won't say randomized, but it was a quasi experimental design. But you know the the case mix of the patients in these two groups of hospitals was was quite different. The de- yeah. demographics of the patients was quite different. The effect of the implementation of the policy was different. The, the staffing ratios were different at baseline, substantially different. I mean, it's it's, it's worth noting that it the, is, the yes. nurse to staffing ratio between the intervention and the convention convention hospitals, the difference between those two groups at baseline far exceeded the change in the ratios achieved by the policy. Yeah, so these these hospitals are not the same. There's exactly. many things here that are different, but it's a change exactly. and change analysis, which is where I think it sort of redeems itself a little bit. But still, I, I came away thinking this is probably true. You know, it, it it is it makes sense that it should be true because you imagine that you know the more patients a nurse has, the more you know overwhelmed they're going to be, the, the more likely mistakes are to you know. To, to occur, or that you know, critical judgments in terms of, of you know care decisions are, are going to be missed because they're just too overwhelmed to really observe what's happening to all of their patients. I mean, this is this is basically what the assumption is: is that that yep. you know, when you overwhelm an individual, they basically can't you know the, the quality of care falls for everybody. But yep. what, but where is that sweet spot? What is the right number? What should it be? And of course, that depends not just on you know, whether this is a meds, you know, hospital A versus hospital B, but what are the nurses doing? So in, in this study, for example, they only looked at medical surgical units, which are, you know, which, which are the majority of, of beds in most hospitals, just so for those who, who don't know. But it would be really interesting to look at the same question in an ICU setting, where the impact of all of these staffing ratio issues is going to be magnified because the mortality effects are even higher. Because, you know, it's the, the, the patients are just so much sicker in that situation. So yeah. it would be very interesting to take another look at this, you know, in a, in a different clinical context. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I have to admit, I came away from this skeptical and it's not that I don't think it could be true. I suspect it, it probably is true. It logically, it makes sense. Although lots of things that we think logically make sense don't actually pan out, but I was just left with a lot of questions here. As you say, the, the, the difference in difference type approach is helpful, but to me, it's not. It doesn't doesn't completely solve the problem of the fact that, as you say, these are different hospitals at baseline, different in terms of their case mix, difference in terms of their staffing, you know, ratios before the intervention, such that I, you know, when you when you see small differences, it's hard for me to attribute them. Mm-hmm. They also, where where did they get the information on the the nurse to patient staffing ratios? They they surveyed nurses, so they. They they did like a phone survey, basically, exactly. where they called them up and said, how many, where, where do you work? How often do you work? How many patients do you, did you see on your last shift? Exactly. So they, they did this survey and they surveyed registered nurses and enrolled nurses before and after the policy implementation to gather information on medical surgical nurse staffing levels in the hospital where they worked. So you can already see a potential problem there in that if you're in a hospital, where there is a mandated ratio, you might not report things completely accurately if you're over the the ratio because you know you might be concerned about the consequences, or you know you could make an argument that it could go in the opposite direction that you're you know, you, you you feel like things should be better than they are, so you you inflate that. I, I don't know what would happen, but it's you know it's potentially a a source of 
misinformation that might differ between intervention and comparison facilities. Hmm. In addition to which, the response rate was only 32 to 37%, depending on whether you were talking about before or after. So, you know, who's responding to these and are those going to be the people who would give you the most accurate information? I don't I don't know. They yeah, yeah. they they say these rates are consistent with or better than response rates for similar nurse surveys in the USA. And my response to that is always who cares? Right. Doesn't make it accurate. Right. I mean, I <laughs> I, I I I mean, I get the general point, right? The point is what they're saying is this is hard to do and I I I do understand that, but it doesn't you know, when I'm sort of evaluating, it doesn't change the fact that, you know, if the response rates are low, the response rates are low. Right. doesn't matter if that's typical. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. the differences at baseline, the differences in the case mix, difference in the, you know, all of those things. Plus, I, I have to say, I found the description of their models very hard to follow in how they actually put this all together. It just left me with a with a lot of questions. So I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say that I don't, I think that they're, their result is incorrect so much as I just, I, I'm, I'm not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with you. I, I think, I think it's provocative. I think it moves the needle more towards, you know, if there's been some enthusiasm before now's the time to consider like proper randomized controlled trials. And, and I think maybe even crossover trials mm-hmm. to sort of test this in, in a more rigorous fashion with precise measurement of the staffing ratios rather than, you know, the sort of sampled, you know, assumed ratio based on uh, 30% of respondents. Or, you know, not respondents, but yeah. Totally agree with you. Yeah. Totally agree with you. All right. Well, why don't we move on to our our second segment? And boy, if this isn't the most talked about thing on on Epi and and Med Twitter out there. So you got this this new drug that has been approved for treatment of of Alzheimer's, Educanumab. Yeah. It's been approved by the FDA and it has been approved... Despite the fact that I think a lot of people feel that there is not convincing evidence in any way, shape or form that it works, that the initial evidence and again, you can go back and listen, we we covered a uh, one of the Educanumab papers. I think it was their phase one trial and yeah. maybe about two years ago. Yeah. You know, the the I'm going to give you just a, the very short version of the critique here. And then, Chris, you can sort of weigh in on what you think. But, you know, we're, we're, we're in this position where we don't have medications to to treat or prevent Alzheimer's. And, and it's it's a it's a very prevalent condition in, in older old age. And, and it's a very troubling condition, one that we would really like to have treatment for. And so when something comes along that appears to be promising, you can see that people would really push for uh, approval. But obviously, we want to know that it is truly effective before we would put it out there. In my understanding, we have this drug developed by Biogen called aducanumab, which didn't exactly, didn't really show much of a benefit in their you know phase phase three trial. But when they went back and looked at the data, they were able to find benefits within subgroups, is my understanding. That's right. At the higher dose, they found a, a, a trend towards a, a decreased decline, that is to say less bad, in those who got the high dose of aducanumab versus the lower doses in one study and not in the other. And and the problem there becomes that studies are not powered typically for these, you know, subset analyses or these, these you know, dosing analyses. And so you start to, you know, say, okay, well, do we really at this point have convincing evidence that this drug actually works? And I think 
based on my read of things, I think a lot of people feel like, no, it does not, in fact, work. Or we have not proven that it works. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so the the Biogen put their uh, submission into the FDA, and the FDA went ahead and approved this drug. And this is going to be a very expensive drug, a drug for which we don't have convincing evidence that it works. Was that a bad decision by the FDA? Or are we in a position where we say, you know, this is such a such a crisis that we have to approve something that we think could be effective because patients should have access to a drug that that is, you know, potentially, potentially effective. And, you know, I really I have to say I, I worry about that. But, Chris, first, let me just start with did I leave out any important details? And then from there, give me give me your take on this particular Situation. Yeah. So there, there's there's two other pieces of this uh, debate that I think are, are are really important. One one is that the decision to approve the drug was through this thing called accelerated approval. So it's 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 not a traditional pathway for approving drugs through FDA. It's a special pathway that is designated for drugs for which there is a you know a compelling public health uh, unmet public health need, which we would stipulate is certainly the case here with Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And for which there is a reasonable expectation of clinical benefit, which is different from the usual language of approval where they have demonstrated clinical benefit. So this is more like we think it probably works rather than we are sure it works. And the reason we are approving it is because the, the, the need is so great and that we're going to take her, we're going to accept this lower standard of evidence given the unusual circumstances. So that that's point number one is that this was through this, this special designated accelerated approval pathway. The second part that that was really interesting is that the decision to go ahead and approve through this, this pathway came over the unanimous objections of their external advisory panel, which had basically said, we do not see compelling evidence of efficacy, and therefore we, you know, we, we would say, do not approve this drug until at least a third randomized controlled trial has been completed that mm-hmm. you know settles the issue. Because you have one study that kind of sort of worked in a subgroup analysis and the other one that really did not work in a subgroup analysis. And so like, give us more data, prove, prove this thing. And the FDA went out went over their heads and then said, we're going to do it anyway. And a, and a number of the panel members actually resigned in protest over this. So there's, there was a sort of a, a political sturm und drang that, that resulted. And so, you know, given all of this, where, what's your, you know, what's your take? I mean, should, the, was this, was the process as it's designed, did it, did it do, did it come to the right conclusion or was this a, a failure, and if so, was it a failure because you know pressure was was exerted to find something that would give people hope, even if it may not? Okay, so I, I, it's this is a super complicated question because the. the for one thing, the, the drug is a, is a monoclonal antibody, and so it has to be given intravenously. And the storage conditions for you know for monoclonals and other biologics t- tend to be quite onerous. And these drugs, as, as a as a as a family, tend to be very expensive. And so mm-hmm. you know this is not a you know a, a small investment that would be you know picked up by Medicare, for example. This is this is a right. this is a large. You know, predictably huge hit that's going to going to be felt by the U.S. taxpayer in terms of paying for this possibly ineffective medication. Second is that in in the clinical trials there there were a substantial number of of, of side effects, including severe side effects. Where you know the the, the way the drug works is that it it attack it, the antibodies bind to these beta amyloid plaques and lead to their removal, but it also sets up an inflammatory reaction in those parts of the brain where the inflammatory you know the the beta amyloid plaques 
reside. And, and those inflammatory reactions can lead to brain edema and seizures and, you know, confusion. And in some case, in, in, you know, uh, intracranial bleeds. And so there, there is a, there is a non-trivial risk associated with this. So, so those are two sort of, you know, factors on the minus side for why you would say don't do this but on the mm-hmm. on the positive side on the plus side for why they did it there was there was a there was a very good editorial i thought from patricia cavazzoni and billy dunn who are respectively the directors for cdur the center for drug evaluation and research at fda and the director for the office of neuroscience that's uh, billy dunn he tried to explain why they went ahead with this approval over the objections of of their external advisory panel and mm-hmm. and their their focus is really on this accelerated approval process. That they their their point is that this mechanism was designed precisely for this kind of situation where you have this huge unmet uh, medical need, um, and yet the evidence is, is sort of like suggestive but far from conclusive. And so the way they framed this is that you know yes we 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 do not see these as definitive evidence. We're not saying that the advisory panel was wrong. We're saying that there is a reasonable expectation of clinical benefit. And the reason they said that is that unlike previous monoclonal antibody preparations that had attacked the beta amyloid plaques, which did not lead to a reduction in the plaque density on PET scans. In the case of aducanumab, it absolutely did. That the, the the plaque, you know, depositions on PET scans melted like a pat of butter in a frying pan. And so if if one believes the theory that the beta amyloid plaques are part of the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease, then it kind of follows that the that there should be a clinical benefit linked to this. Now, others would say, yes, but we haven't proved that the beta amyloids are really responsible for Alzheimer's disease. I mean, there's, there's this competing so-called tau protein theory that that you know, is indirectly linked to the beta amyloid plaques, but maybe more directly causal. So all of that is true. But I, I think what, what they are arguing is that given these ambiguities, you know, yes, we are not sure this is going to work, but taking a best guess on what we can demonstrate from a surrogate marker and the hints that this leads to clinical improvements, at least in a subset, and given the, the overwhelming need and the desperation for many families who simply cannot wait because of the, you know, the ongoing deterioration of their loved ones, we are going to go ahead and approve this with the caveat that Biogen has to go ahead and do a third randomized control trial. And if that trial flunks, then the FDA is perfectly within its purview to, re- to revoke that accelerated authorization. So that was sort of where they came through. And I I actually found myself, you know, sort of leaning towards, yes, I I guess I I do agree with that. But it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because we know that once a a, a product is on the market, it becomes devilishly difficult to do randomized controlled trials on that product because nobody wants to be in the placebo group anymore, right? So so how would Biogen do this? And and I I suppose the answer might be that they'd they'd have to go ex-U.S., and and that has go its own uh, outside of the United what? States. They'd have to go outside of the United States uh. to run their clinical trials. It's you know to like the European Union or South America or something like that. And that always feels bad that you're, you know, you're 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 experimenting on a, on a on a different population from the one that is taking, you know, potential benefit of the of the, of the drug. Nonetheless, yeah. I don't know. I I, I guess I sort of I, I went into this debate feeling like uh, I think this was a big mistake. And, and, you know, I was strongly influenced by one of the editorials that I'd read by an Alzheimer's expert who really was just, you know, irate, I can't remember his name, about this and, and talked about all the science and the failures of previous monoclonals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and yet Cavazzoni's and Billy Dunn's explanation for the decision left me rather sympathetic, actually. 
Yeah, I, I'm still, you know, I'm I'm struggling with this one, but I still fall on the side of I I, I I'm not supportive of this decision. You know, I, I admit that I'm not, you know, I don't I, I don't understand the regulatory process completely. So you know, it is a bit of a challenge here, but. You know, it just strikes me that this is going to be an, you know, it's a really expensive drug that, you know, is now going to be available to people. And, you know, if we if we find out, uh, well, let me just say, I, I, I think it's very hard to communicate the nuance that we're not saying that it works. We're just saying that people should be able to have access to it. You know, I, I'm not sure that people really necessarily are going to get that message and may not just you know, truly believe that this drug is, is effective. And it's, I feel like it's very hard to, to go back later on and say, you know, that it, it, if the subsequent trial doesn't actually pan out and it doesn't work to be able to then say to people, okay, now we're, we're, we're taking this drug off the market and, you know, to have people not be who are, who are, you know, now believe that this drug has been useful to not then be very upset that this drug is being taken off the market and to, to put lots of pressure on the FDA not to make that decision. I mean, I, I just think it's, it's creating a big problem that has to be weighed against the, the, you know, potential for benefit. And I'm not sure I see that yet. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I can't disagree on any of those points. Uh, you know, the whole thing leaves me feeling deeply uneasy, but I imagine that everyone felt deeply uneasy about this, that, that, you know, I agree. it would be so much easier if there was just like a slam dunk clinical trial result that said, boy, this thing's a, you know, it can slow Alzheimer's and disease by 10%, which may not be great, but it's so much better than anything we've got right now. The only thing I will, I will, I will add in sort of closing on this is that the, this kind of decision through this accelerated approval process, this is definitely not the first time this has happened. In fact, it's it's happened quite often in the case of cancer drugs, where yep. the same argument has been leveled that there's a there's a pressing medical need that is unmet, particularly for hard to treat cancers, and that these drugs have been you know approved despite having serious side effects and having questionable efficacy and being extremely expensive, given the potential for benefit using the same logic that, you know, there is a reasonable expectation of, of clinical efficacy, but the evidence is simply not there. And yet the need is so compelling, we, we, we feel that we have to act Yep, and, and try to get more information later. Yep, certainly not the first time, and it won't be the last, but it, it, it you know, it did create quite a bit of a, a firestorm. And you do wonder what the what the long-term consequences are there for, for patients, but also for just sort of trust in the in that process. But we can we can leave that there and move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. I'll I'll go first this time, Chris. I have a yeah, um, sure. What I have this time is a press release. Ooh. And it's a press release that I have I I came across that I just thought of you when I read it. Uh-oh. And this was a press release put out by Harvard Health Publishing, the Harvard Medical School, essentially. It was a press release. I guess it's a press release, you could call it. It's sort of a more of a story on, on a study about a study that came out. It was published online in the journal Heart back in March of 2020. And it was, you know, critiqued at the time. And then in on June 1st of 2020, so this is going back a... A year, so this is not a, a new one, but I just hadn't seen the press release 
until now. And the the headline of the the well, it's, it's not called news briefs. I won't call it a press release. It's called news briefs. So it's a almost more of a, a story. It says, "Can hot baths protect your heart?" Hmm. And it's a write up of a of a study that was published in the in the journal Heart that was done in Japan amongst thirty thousand middle aged people in Japan using self-reported data on uh, health and lifestyle information that found that compared with people who didn't take a tub bath more than twice a week, people who took a daily warm hot bath had a 28% lower risk of cardiovascular disease and a 26% lower risk of stroke. They then go on to say, the study is only observational and doesn't prove that daily tub bathing staves off heart health, but previous research has shown that the effects of, of bathing in a tub are are similar to those of exercise. The reason that I thought of you when I saw this is to me, and again, I haven't read the study in detail, but to me, the idea of a taking a, a, a bath in your tub two days a week is equivalent to the Chris Gill roof rack uh, <laughs> for your kayaks, Yeah, right? This is just a, an indicator of socioeconomic Everything. status. The, the, the ability, you know, the... The, the ability to take, I mean, a, a, a bath twice a week is is limited to, you know, not everyone can do that. And so when you're comparing those who can take a, a bath twice a week and those who can't, it just strikes me as a a real strong marker of, of, of SES. And I just, I thought, yep. Chris can stop saying, Chris can stop saying kayak roof racks and start saying tub baths. Yeah. So there you go. With or without fizzers. With or without. Fizzers. There you go. Yep. Well, All I, right, what do you I, got, Chris? I'm, I'm going to be super short today. I, I was uh, trolling around on on science looking for interesting articles, and what I found instead was a whole collection of cool haikus related to COVID. And I'm not going to read them all, but some of them were really funny. I thought, and so I'm going to I'm going to give you the of, of the. 30 or so that they they included, I'm going to give the ones I thought were, were best. And they come in different categories. So this is under the category of home. And the, the haiku is called Passion with a Lag, submitted by Hikaru Katie Kotake of the United States. And she says, online lab meetings, heated debates, but with lags, victories lack oomph. <laughs> I, I love that. I was like, yes, that's so true. There's no pleasure anymore in being right nope. over Zoom. It's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Totally agree. So here's another one that I thought that you would appreciate under relevance, and it's called infectious disease modeling. No one knew my field. Now all say are not. I hope they can forget soon. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I like that one. Here's one called Nano Tackles COVID. Nanoscience sees nanoparticles stop spread and nanotech cures. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> so here's one called Psychology by Sarita Kumari of India. It says, mental health declines, psychologists in demand, time to nourish souls. So good. So good. This one's called Grad School Interview, presumably by someone who was interviewing for grad school during COVID. Charlotte Ruth Minio of the United States. I talked to my screen. Interview? Insanity. We'll shake hands someday, perhaps. Perhaps. And, and then two or three more. Quarantine Resolution by Andrea Mattiotti of the Netherlands. Could write a review, maybe starting tomorrow or the day after. <laughs> <laughs> 
This one's called Silver Lining. I'll appreciate Bitter Conference coffee more than in the past. Oh, so true. Yep. And then the very last one, which I think was super charming, called Rise, submitted by Caitlin Amott of the United States. No longer asking who will sink and who will swim. Together we rise. Mm, those are good. You yeah, got to send those clever. around. Yeah. You got to send. Good job, uh, science, for harvesting good. those. Good I was going to try to write my own, but then I felt I felt chagrined and humbled. Totally. I get it. I get it. I would not be able to write a good haiku. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic I for us to take a study. on. A randomized controlled trial of haiku writing with and without the effect of alcohol. All right. We're going we're gonna to do that one. We can, you can do it online. At, you, we can do it. You can... <laughs> You can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox, or Donna at DeepTheo1, or Chris at ID.Gill. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and looking up who wrote what song at the drop of a hat. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>